text and offer this last sermon, I just want to say um, that it has been, and I have always considered it to be a singular privilege to be able to preach the Word. I have a very, very high view of God's Word and therefore of God's pulpit and consider it an immense uh, privilege as well as an immense responsibility. And also, I wanted to say this morning that there have been so many times in the last seven and a half years where I have felt like the Lord has invited me to take off my shoes because the ground upon which I was standing was holy ground. I didn't count. Um, But there is somewhere around 30 to 40 funerals that I conducted, memorial services, graveside services, in the last seven and a half years. I see Val sitting there. John Stoker was... I'm the first, the man without a middle name. I remember the message, but um, these were really sacred moments, and uh, thank you for letting me walk with you. Some of them uh, were um, unbelievably difficult and tragic, and those are sacred moments, and I I keep those in my heart. And uh, for premarital couples and other pastoral um, engagements that I had, these are deeply and profoundly precious. So thank you for letting me walk with you and trusting me with the sacred duty to hold things um, in confidence and to say God when sometimes it's hard to say God. I am going to read this morning from Mark chapter 13. It is called, um, sometimes by scholars, Mark's mini-apocalypse, or also the Olivet Discourse. There are similar uh, stories like this in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke. I'm going to actually read the entire chapter, Mark 13. on page uh, 1017 of your pew Bible. Beloved, listen to God's word. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out, that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. 
You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at that time. For it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. Oh, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that hour or day, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, what does a preacher like myself say on a day like today, when he's standing on the edge of things and wanting to give some parting words to a people whom he loves. I think that the good pastor simply shares his heart. Shares his heart for his Lord, shares his heart for his Lord's church, shares his heart for his Lord's people. And that is all that I really want to do this morning. Um, From this passage, using this passage in Mark 13, where Jesus himself is standing on the edge of things, and wanting to give some parting words to his disciples who are looking into an uncertain future and wondering what that's going to look like. 
Peter Lightheart is a mentor of mine in the Center of Pastor Theologians. He's a very, very wonderful theologian to listen to. A couple of months ago, he was at a conference and he gave a talk where he made a distinction that is very helpful when looking at a text like Mark 13. Peter Lightheart distinguished between two types of ends of the world that we find in Scripture. Two types of the end of the world. On the one hand, if you look at Scripture, you will find that there is the end of the world, as you will read about it in the book of Revelation, for example, or in 2 Peter, or in Thessalonians, the correspondence to the church in Thessalonica. It is when Christ returns and the present order of things will be completely overturned and new heavens and a new earth will be ushered in where there will be no more crying or mourning or pain or tears and the old order of things will be completely away. There is the end of the world in Scripture when Christ returns to gather us. But then Lightheart points out very importantly, again, for a text like is before us this morning, that there are the end of worlds which is to say that throughout history, there is a cycle. One world gives way to another world. Again, this is to say that one culture, one civilization, one group of people who live according to a set of beliefs about the world, who have values about the world that have constructed and built up their society is overtaken by a new set of values, a new set of beliefs about the world, and the world that they once knew and were used to living in passes away and they have to adjust to living into a very different world. This happens several times in Scripture. It happens in the days of Noah. But then it happens also when the first temple of Israel is destroyed. In Israelite religion, the temple is conceptualized, it's thought about as a microcosm of the heavens and the earth. When Israel's temple is destroyed, therefore, it is the end of a world. And indeed, if you were living in that time after Solomon's temple was destroyed and you were sent into exile, the world that you knew before the collapse of the temple is very different from the world that you are now living in after the collapse of the temple. The time leading up to the collapse of the temple was a time of turbulence. It was a time of great lies. It was a time of division. There's another place in Scripture where this happens, and namely it happens in the Olivet Discourses, like Mark 13. What Jesus is talking about in our text is not the end of the world as we sometimes think about it. And as most Christians are used to reading this text, Instead, what Jesus is talking about is the imminent end of the world known by scholars as Second Temple Judaism. A world that constituted a way of being, that had certain beliefs about this world, that functioned in a certain way. In A.D. 70, Antiochus Epiphanes goes to the temple in Jerusalem and sets up what Jesus alludes to in our text and prophesies about an abomination that causes desolation, and he destroys the temple. It is, once again, the end of a world. And if you were living in that time, the world that you were living in after the destruction of the temple is very different from the world you lived in prior to the destruction of the temple. As scholars will tell you, it was the advent of rabbinic Judaism. Prior to that time, 
at least in a larger way. Prior to that time, if you wanted to go and be with God, of course you would go to the temple because the temple was the place of the presence of God. But after that time, the rabbinic Jews said, where two or three are gathered around Torah, there he is also. But then for those Jews who found that they believed in Jesus as a Messiah, they too were living in a different world after the destruction of the temple. And what they said is where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, there I am also. Two types of worlds that give way to another world. There will be an end of the world where the present world as we know it will pass away and give way to a new world. But throughout history, there has been a cycle where one culture or civilization, one world, is overtaken by another one and passes away. And what Lightheart believes, and this is why I want to talk about this today, because I have mighty sympathy for what he says, is that we are in the midst, the twilight, friends, of one world passing away and giving way to another world. Namely, the world, the civilization, the culture that was built on Judeo-Christian foundations and that has given us the society that we live in today. This world is passing away and a new world is going to take its place. The values that were once held by the masses are no longer held by the masses. The beliefs that were the building blocks that gave us the institutions, that gave us the structures, that gave us the laws that we have in Western society are not the beliefs that are gluing us together anymore. They are being taken by other beliefs. A new world is coming into play. I think it has been slowly progress progressing for the last 200 years. Um... And so what does this mean for the church? Well, Jesus says in our text that when one world is passing away and giving way to another world, it is a time of great upheaval. It is a time of destabilization, of disorientation, where many uncomfortable things begin happening. It is a time of false leaders and false teachers even in the church and false prophets will arise, making it very difficult for the church to still be the church. It's a time where there will be increasing pressure on the church to be something other than what it is. It will even be a time of persecution, as Jesus says, where we could be taken before the civil magistrates and even before authorities within the church itself. It's a time of great tribulation, a time of great difficulty. And again, friends, the reason I'm mentioning this is because I have believed that we are in the twilight of this transition. And I have believed this for the last seven and a half years. And I have become increasingly um, convicted that this is what is going on along with Peter Lightheart. And so what I would like to do this morning is to simply say, if that is true, and by the way, even if it's not and you disagree with my hypothesis here, everything will still pertain okay? But how now shall we live as the church? What shall we do in order to survive through these turbulent times, and even more than just survive, that we might thrive through these turbulent times? I want to say, as simply as I know how, and as briefly as I know how, I want to just say four things to the church this morning that Jesus suggests we remember, and that why I want to insist 
that you remember as you look into the future and as we seek to be the church in the future. Four things to remember. First, Church of Jesus Christ, believers in Jesus, please remember who you are. Remember who you are. In a time where there is destabilization, where nations are rising up against nations in increasing fashion, where kingdoms are rising up against kingdoms, where brothers rise against brothers, where families are being divided, where you're not sure what to think anymore because you're going to be accused of wrong think and wrong do. It is very easy in a world like that to begin to forget who we are, to lose our identity, and thus begin to be unfaithful to our Lord. In a world that is becoming destabilized, it's easy to begin to feel destabilized in our fundamental identity. And so I want to say to you this morning, remember who you are. And also as a church, do everything that you can over and over again to remind each other of who you are. Do you remember who you are? Who is that? Well, the first thing is that you are someone who is chosen. You are someone who is chosen to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow the way, the truth, and the life. He who called himself the light of the world. So remember that you are baptized. Maybe you were baptized as an infant. But then remember that you gave profession to say, I am going to follow Jesus in my life even if it costs my life because he is worthy of being followed. You did it in front of other people. We bind ourselves in commitment with other people. So precisely when things get tough, precisely when we are tempted to forget who we are, we remember that we gave the good profession, as Paul says to Timothy. Remember who you are. You are a person who has chosen to follow Jesus. You are a person who has decided to apprentice yourself after the rabbi, after the teacher. But then also this, and more deeply, not only are you someone who has chosen to be a disciple of Jesus and follow him, but even more deeply, you are someone who has been chosen by God. Perhaps you may remember Six years ago or so, I preached a sermon where I outlined and emphasized this fact. John puts this kind of dual nature of the Christian identity so beautifully in his gospel. In chapter 1 of John, we see John the Baptist walking down the road with two of his friends, and he looks over and he sees Jesus, and he points with a very long finger, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his two disciples then decide of their own volition to go and follow Jesus. And then what happens? Well, <laughs> the one disciple goes and finds another friend, and he says, come and see Jesus. That friend decides to come and see Jesus and also starts following him. And then he, a new disciple of Jesus, goes and finds another friend and says, come and see Jesus. He comes, and then he becomes a disciple of Jesus. And then he goes out and he finds another friend. He says, come and see the one spoken about in the law and prophets, he comes and sees and becomes a disciple of Jesus. And you go, so that's how it happens. Yes, we decide to follow Jesus and be his disciples. But then in John chapter 6, a mystery is revealed. A prodigious wonder is revealed when Jesus says these words, 
All that the Father gives to me will come to me and I will never drive them away. And it's at that moment that the penny is to drop and the fullness of your identity is revealed. Not only have you chosen to be a disciple of Jesus, but even more than that, God has chosen you. Jesus says in Mark 13 before us today, the elect, the elect, the elect. Yes, believe it. God has chosen you, and here's the right way to conceptualize your identity. You ready? You are the gift of the Father to the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh my, let me say it again. <laughs> you are the gift of God the Father to God the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no firmer identity than to know that you are a gift like that. Yes, you've chosen to follow Jesus, but even more than that, God has chosen you to be his own special possession. As one of my professors used to love to say, it is not so much we who hold the truth as it is the truth who holds us. So take great hope no matter how hard the days ahead may become. No matter how much we begin to live more and more on the edge of things, remember who you are. And in the church, do everything that you can, all the time, in every way, to remind each other of who you are. Disciples of Jesus, chosen by God, the gift of the Father to the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, thank you for this identity. And as we seek to remember who we are, I want you to also do this, because our Lord wants you to do this. This isn't Ed speaking here. Sisters and brothers in Christ, please, I beg you, stand firm. Stand firm. Stand up for your Lord in this world. Scripture says that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Stand up for your Lord. Stand up for his word. Look, this is not something man made up. That's what we believe in the church. This is the word of God, which has been passed down from people who are willing to suffer to get this into our hands, who are willing to sit at desks, learn new languages, translate them so that we could understand them. This is the word of God, and we must, in and amidst everything else that we do in the days that may get very dark, we must stand up for Christ in this world, who authored these very scriptures as, remember what John says, as the word of God, who not only speaks the scriptures throughout, but who also adds to the scriptures now as we find in the New Testament and with his words. But you know, let me underscore, it's not going to be easy. It will not be easy. You see what Jesus says in our text? To live on the edge of things, where one world is giving way to another world, is to begin to live in an age of lies, where your leaders will lie to you, where they will propagate new forms of propaganda. It is where even leaders in the church are going to be introducing, as Peter will say, false her heresies to deceive, if it were possible, even the elect. Jesus says the same thing in our text here. In fact, it is a bona fide feature of what goes on when one world is giving way to another world in the course of history. You can look 
at the story of Noah and begin to see how people started to believe about their fellow human beings in the days of Noah. These were not the ways of God. But then also in the days of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's chief complaint is that the leaders have become completely corrupt and are willing to tell people what their tickling ears want to hear. Even though destruction is imminent and the temple is going to be destroyed, what does Jeremiah hear his contemporaries saying? Peace. Peace. When, as Jeremiah says, there is no peace. How many times in our text, I dare you to look at it, how many times in our text does Jesus use words like this? Watch out. Watch. Guard. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Be vigilant. Because if you're gullible, if you are not on the lookout, if you're not paying attention, you are going to start believing things that are not true. And in Scripture, to believe things that are not true is to court disaster in your own life and in the life of society as a whole. And so, beloved, I simply want to say to you, stand firm. Or, as I preached for seven weeks at this church, because I do believe we are on the edge of things, remember Ephesians chapter 6. Stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the powers and principalities of this dark world in the unseen realms. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. Do it. Do everything you can to get armored up. Put that belt of truth around your waist. Put on that breastplate of righteousness. Put on the helmet of salvation. Take the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the, the arrows of the evil one. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And put on those feet fitted for the readiness of the gospel of peace. Of peace. Be armored up. Stand firm so that after everything you can stand and God will be glorified. As you seek to remember who you are and remind others of that, as you seek to stand firm all the way to the end, even though it may be difficult, also then do this. Remember, please, and remind each other to look to the horizon. Jesus says toward the end of our text that he will gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. And then the master of the house will return. There is an immediate and an ultimate reference that we can see in this text as we look at it on the canvas of Scripture as a whole. An immediate and an ultimate reference. As one world gives way to another world, here's what's going to happen, says Jesus. You know what's going to happen? Something quite marvelous. Something quite unexpected. Something that is going to give you cheer and encouragement in your heart. Jesus is going to be bringing people from very different walks of life, true believers who love him, and who are standing firm, and who remember who they are. He's going to bring them from north. He's going to bring them from south. He's going to bring them from east and west. He's going to bring them together in new communities where as they minister to each other and profess their faith, they're going to experience the presence of the Son of God in unexpected ways. In my experience, this is already happening. I have been surprised by the sorts of communities that Jesus is bringing me into with people I never thought Christians from different denominations, from different persuasions, from different parts of the world. And I cannot tell you what kind of an encouragement that is. And when you sit, as you sit, notice the language of our text, as you come to sit in these groups, maybe as the church needs to go underground, I don't know. 
what is going to happen. But as you come, remember this. The Lord has brought you here together. Even as now we confess, you're not here by accident. The Lord chose you. The Lord has called you to be a part of this body. Never forget that. And remember to look at each other then as gifts. The gift of the Father to the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the immediate reference. But then, of course, there's an ultimate reference where at the end of time, God will indeed draw in all those who have loved him, all those whom he has chosen. He will draw them together and bring them into a new heavens and a new earth where at long last we will see God face to face. We will be in the beatific vision in that day. And what I want to say to you is look to the horizon. Remember that. So as the days get hard, you will not give up your faith. You will stay buoyed and you will have joy in your heart because you know what's coming. You know that the struggles of the present day are temporary and are fading away. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, this one's for Curtis. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Gandalf has to go and run an errand He's on Shadowfax, and he wants to say to the fellowship, Gandalf is something of a Christ figure in, this, in these books, and he's, his fellowship, of course, doesn't want to see Gandalf go. He's a powerful warrior. They're about to enter a very dark time and probably the biggest battle of the book, and Gandalf is about to trot off on Shadowfax, this mighty steed, and he turns around and he looks at the fellowship and he says, look for me at first light of the fifth day, at dawn, look to the east. Look for me at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. Hold on to hope. I am coming again. And what we are to do, sisters and brothers, is also, when things get difficult, as they have been difficult in different ways for all of us, but as we are living on the edge of things and they may get more difficult, and maybe I'm speaking to the next generation here, but remember to look to the horizon at what's coming. Very good things are coming Jesus is coming. He will rescue us so we can be pricked with the joy of hope. This is why, if you remember last Easter and even before that, I said to remember that Christianity is the religion of 5 a.m. Picking up on Houston Smith, a world's religion expert who spoke in a lecture one time and he compared Christianity to other religions of the world as it would fall on the compass of a clock, on the dial of a clock. I want to remind you of this because I find this image so hopeful and so helpful and so beautiful. He said, if Buddhism is the religion of 9 a.m., when it is warm and light outside and everything becomes visible because Buddhism is the religion of enlightenment, and if Islam is the religion when of 12 noon, when the sun is straight overhead, beating down hard because Islam calls you to the submissions of Allah. And if Judaism is the religion of 6 p.m., when the sun is going down and it's wise and enchanting because Judaism is the religion of the sweet contemplations of Yahweh. And if New Ageism or Neo-Paganism is the religion of 12 midnight, when it's completely dark and black outside because New Ageism says that the light is not on the outside anyways, but the light is within. If all of these religions are those times, then, says Smith, Christianity must be understood as the religion of 5 a.m., of the crack of dawn, when the sun has just begun coming over the horizon 
and the darkness is being scared away because Christianity is the religion of the risen Lord Jesus Christ who is ushering in a new creation. We have not left the darkness behind. It still is there. It's still cold sometimes outside. But the light is coming and things are getting warmer and the hope of a new day is to be ever-present upon our hearts. Remember, saints, Christianity is the religion of 5 a.m. We are not talking about some spiritual idea. We're talking about a historical figure who came out of the grave, as Scripture says, as a first fruit. He rose up with a new body. It's the first fruit of a new creation. He will come again. Your present struggles will pass away. So look to the horizon and be strong. Stand firm. Remember who you are. Just one more thing. As you remember who you are, as you seek to stand firm, as you look to the horizon, do one more thing. Glory. Glory. Worship. Stand around the throne. Embed Revelation 4 and 5 in your consciousness. See it. Imagine it. Participate in it. God, the Almighty, the Creator, is portrayed at the center of the center of all things in Revelation chapter 4, sitting on a throne. The sevenfold Spirit of God is around Him, which is the Holy Spirit at the center of the center of all things. But then John looks and he sees that there is a figure at the center of the center of the center of all things. He looks and he sees a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then he looks again and he sees a lamb. It's a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, the lion who overcame and defeated by giving his own life, by becoming the Lamb, so that he might redeem for himself and the Father and the Spirit a humanity in God's image to the glory of God. When the creatures see the Father and see the Son and see the Holy Spirit, which is not far away, this is always going on all the time, every day, in every way, behind the veil. Peek behind the veil and then join in in the glory, in the worship. The creatures bowed down. Creatures we have not yet begun to imagine. They give glory to the one on the throne because, beloved, he is worthy. We could give a multitude of other reasons for why in the church we ought to worship because it renews us because of this, because of that. But you know what's enough? He's worthy. He's worthy of your worship. So as you seek to remember who you are, as you seek to stand firm, as you look to the horizon, in and through and among all of these things, please remember to give Him the glory because He's worthy. That's it. He's worthy. He's God. He's love. I think about six years ago now, at a Thanksgiving service, I recited a speech I learned when I was about 19 years old, spoken by a fellow by the name of Dr. S.M. Lockridge, and it is the words that I want to leave you with as my parting word. Not my own words, but words that come from Dr. S.M. Lockridge. 
The backstory is that he was sitting in the front pew of church one day. His friend was, um, or his student, I'm not sure what it was, was preaching. And uh, he was talking about who his king is. And he saw Dr. Lockridge sitting in the front pew and he said, hey, Dr. Lockridge, would you come up here and just tell the good people here whom your king is? And Dr. Lockridge got up and gave this spontaneous electrifying speech. I, and just one word of a caveat word here is I learned this using a deep south southern accent. So if that accent comes out of me today, I find it absolutely beautiful. Please do not be offended that I am imitating an accent. I can do no other. Here's what Lockridge said. Well, the Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He's a king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's a king of Israel. That's a national king. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of glory. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. Yes, that's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is a, is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitlessness. No Fossian telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoulder supplies. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. Do you know him? He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally gracious. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that's ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He's all this, and he's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Do you know him? He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He is the fundamental doctrine of all true theology. He is the coronary necessity of true spiritual religion. He is the miracle of the age. He is. He is. Yes, he is. He is the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He is the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder, do you know him today? He provides strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He guards and he guides. He strengthens and sustains. He heals the sick. He cleanses lepers. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He regards the age. He defends the young. Do you know him? Well, my king, my king is the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the pathway to peace. He's the highway to holiness. And he's the gateway to glory. Yes, that's my king. Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His goodness is limitless. His life is matchless. His love never changes. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous and his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Yes, that's my king. And that's my king. And well, I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's indescribable. He's, he's, he's incomprehensible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees, they couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimony to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yes, that's my king, 
and that's your king, and that's our king. And thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever, and ever, and ever. How long is that? And ever, and ever. And when you get through with all the forevers, then amen. Good God Almighty, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.